I would like to welcome everybody to another episode of the House of Bricks podcast. If you've been following our show, you know we have featured some of the greatest athletes in the NBA, NFL, Super Bowl champions, NBA champions, top keynote speakers, CEOs, doctors changing the landscape of healthcare. And as you know, 50% of the calls or 50% of the people are going to be disappointed with every call that he makes. So Tommy Short, welcome to the House of Bricks podcast. I go one step further and say everybody disliked every decision I made, but half the time they were a little less disappointed. But I don't want to, I don't want to cloud anybody's judgment and think that like half the people like me. It was like everyone disliked me, but for a moment in time there was like a little less dislike. But yeah, everybody pretty much disliked me. That's a great correction, and I, I can't think of another profession where everyone else is an expert except the guy making the call. So the people in the stands, the parents, the players, you're under a microscope 24-7 on the court. Uh, but before we get into some of your experiences as a referee, I'd love to have you just tell us a little bit about yourself, educate our audience and listeners. Uh, we have some very passionate people that are competitive in sports, business, life. They want to be better fathers, better husbands, better spouses. So we're really about growing and using life's experiences for you. So love to have you tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. I mean, maybe I'll just, I'll, I'll fast forward and, and kind of give you the meat of it. So spent nearly two decades officiating college basketball, started right out of, right out of high school. So it's, it's kind of funny. I got hired in this small college at 19. So some of the games I worked for the first few years, Adam, uh, some of the players were actually older than me. Uh, a couple of them were like, hey, how old are you? And I'm like, how old do you think I am? So that was that was funny starting out in small college. And then like anything else, right? You just start asking questions, success leaves clues. I knew there was guys at, at this level that I wanted to get to, whether it was the NBA or college. Obviously, the NBA was the ultimate dream. And that didn't come to fruition. Still had a, a wonderful career. And I also joke, I got a PhD in human behavior. As I look back at my officiating career, because I had to be a great teammate. I had to be really decisive there. There's a back and forth, but on average, anywhere from 500 to 700 decisions within a 40-minute game. And, and a lot of those were in, you know, as, as you know, as a former player, 10, 15 seconds per. So highly scrutinized, like you you opened the show, right? Uh, you know, for 38 minutes, I had to be really, really good. And then for the last two minutes, I had to be perfect. Because if I wasn't, you know, I'd end up on SportsCenter, right? And as a former player, you know, you know, if I make a mistake with 18 minutes to go in the first half, you've got about 60 other chances to, to make it up. But if I, if I kick a call or I mess something up in the last second or so, you might not have another possession. Now I could go back and forth with, with a lot of people and say that, uh, you know, that last call at the end of the game, that, that didn't decide the game, right? As I look back on that career, everything that I learned on the court has now transitioned to what I do as a, as a speaker and, and a coach. So, so many valuable life lessons, as you know, sports is the ultimate life teacher, if you will, right? Where you can just learn so much. And I often say now when I, when I speak to groups, whether it's medical device company or, you know, a retail store um, at their corporate headquarters, like, look, I'm not going to teach you how to sell more. I'm not going to teach you, you know, how to do X, Y, and Z as it relates to sales. But what I can share is how to be a great teammate. Some of the things I mentioned at the beginning, how to be decisive with action, how to prepare, how to evaluate your own performance so that you can always evolve. Um, there's a great quote, you know, the difference between the master and the student is that the master has never lost the art of being the student. And that's why 
sometimes the student thinks, well, I've arrived. Well, I've, I've had the fortune of working with our Olympic team that in 2012 and 2016, and even at that level with the best of the best, there was even another level. So I was fortunate for that experience to work with our men's Olympic team to really understand even at the highest level, there's, there's another level. And it's not, it's not the outward competition. It's, it's the inward competition. Well, Tommy, you, you covered a lot of information there. And one of the, one of the things that you said and something I never think about when I look at an official or referee in the game is they are a teammate. Like they're working together. Uh, It seems like a singular role when you're observing the game. If you're, you're, you're watching the teams compete and then a referee or an official is making a call. What were some of the things that you would do as an official to be a good teammate and how did you guys work together? Yeah. So a little context for your listeners or, or viewers. So in basketball, I'll speak to basketball and then just compare it to football, right? Like the NFL in college, as far as football, that's the same crew. There's, there's pros and cons to both. So you're, you're with that crew and you're going to be with that crew for the entirety of the season. Now that's for football. Basketball at, at any level in college and, and in the NBA as well, I could work with Adam you know, three times this year and that might be the only time I see him. Or I could work with Adam and I'll speak specifically to, to the college, Division One. The most I might have ever worked with someone in the season was seven or eight, nine games, maybe max. So there's some there's some interesting dynamics, right? As as a crew chief in basketball, so crew chief meaning I was assigned to be the quote unquote leader of that crew. So I'm going to handle everything before we get to the arena. I'm going to handle our pregame discussion of like, hey, here's here's our matchups, here's our coaches. Have you guys had these players? Things like that. No different than a scouting report that the teams might have as well, right? And then afterwards. Well, halftime and then after the game, we're going to, you know, may- maybe break down some plays. And then there's a pretty good chance that the three of us are all going different directions. A few things within that context of the game. You know, there was a couple things. I'm a big believer in Adam. It's life, business, and sports. The questions you ask yourself, either consciously or subconsciously, will dictate where you go. So the last question I always ask myself as I walk down on the court is, how can I be the best teammate tonight? right? So that takes care of everything. That was actually my question too in the off season. So if, if my main focus, right, is, is not about myself, it's about the two other guys. And frankly, there was times, and I'm sure some of my colleagues could say the same thing. There were times I worked with guys, I didn't really care for them as a person. Now I had to manage that um, situation because I have to, whether I like them or not as an individual, that's my, that's my teammate for the next two hours. And those other two guys better be the only two people that want to see me succeed. So there's some interesting interpersonal dynamics within that. So as a leader in the off season and and in the game, my question is how can I be the best teammate? Well, if that's my question, I'm gonna make sure that my fitness is in pristine shape so that I'm never out of position so that in the event that maybe you, Adam, are out of position, well, if my fitness is at top level, maybe that gives me an extra second or two to get in position to help you on the court. How can I be the best teammate? I'm gonna make sure that my nutrition is in tip top shape so that my energy levels are always high. I'm going to make sure that I, I know the rules through and through. When I switched from wanting to be liked as an official, Adam, to wanting to be respected, it completely changed my body language, my presence, how I walked on the court. You know, unfortunately or fortunately, as officials, perception is reality. So they're looking at everything from the time you arrive at the arena. How are you treating that person that opens the loading dock door? And, and that's the first person you see that, by the way, they have nothing to do with the game or you, they're just literally, sometimes it might be a police officer or an arena worker. So how are you treating that person? 
I'm a big believer in, in do boring better, right? Like the fundamentals are how you get ahead. And that was no different as an official. So I was always very conscious of how I was allowing my teammates to be the better version of themselves. And how can I be a small part in the background to really elevate the other two? So if you think about our audience, we're really getting a behind the scenes look at what it means to be an official, the, the mental preparation. You said something I never really thought about, which is going into the game, you have your scouting report also. You know, uh, coaches' behaviors, players' behaviors. How do you still maintain an objective mindset going in to not let previous behavior dictate how you're officiating the game? Until you truly understand the individuals that you work with on a day-in and day-in basis, I, I think you're leaving your potential at a level that you're not going to be able to fully realize. Okay, so what do you mean by that, Tommy? I truly was getting frustrated as a younger official, not having as much experience, not understanding why coaches, you could have a, co a conversation with a coach like this outside of the season, and they could be a very jovial person and very engaging. But once you get on the court and, and the ball's tossed, it's like, it's a completely, you're like, who's the person? Who's this person? I, I remember this person. And so just out of frustration in, in here in Indy where, where I live, this is when Brad Stevens, I'll, I'll share a story with your audience. This is when Brad Stevens was still at Butler. And because of my coach's proximity, and this happens a lot in college, you know, you'll, you'll go work some, some scrimmages and some stuff during the summer just to get the teams acclimated. I'm sure you probably saw that during your career as well. And so I just went up to Brad and, and developed a pretty cordial working relationship. Not that, I'll be very clear, we did not have a relationship, you know, outside of basketball. But I just came to him one day after a, a scrimmage. I said, hey, Brad, help, help me understand to see the world through your eyes. Help me understand how right now you and I are having this very even keel conversation, but and not just specifically you, but what happens when we throw the ball up? And, and I won't go into the whole discussion, but it was basically like, do you understand what we go through? And I was like, I don't, right? So it's rec the recruiting of 18 to 22 year olds. They have home and away games, whereas an official, all of our games are away. They've got media obligations. They've got their athletic director. They've got boosters. Now with NIL money, I mean, that's a completely other discussion. So once I understood how many things they had owned, we didn't even get into coaching yet, the main component, but they're basically a CEO. So once I understood that, what happened in the game was really at the shirt, right? And I think this is an important message like for your audience. Like they weren't yelling at Tommy Short, the person. It was the striped shirt. So when I was able to delineate the two and there was clear buckets of Tommy the rep and then Tommy the person, completely changed it into the arena of understanding too. Like I'm not there to be liked. I'm there to be respected. And I'm okay if they don't like me as a person, but they will respect my decisions on the court. And so you mentioned kind of this interaction with Coach Stevens, and I'll, I'll skip ahead of my questioning a little bit here. So you don't have to name names, <laughs> but I want you to share with us your craziest experience as an official, first with a coach, and then we'll transition into the fans, because that's a whole nother dynamic that you have to deal with. But tell us about your craziest interaction with a coach before, during, or after a game? Bob Huggins and Kobe. One of the things I did, Adam, in, in the later stages in my career, and it will lead into this, but I, I think this is a, a great takeaway regardless of what your industry is. I started watching coaches' press conferences like two or three days before my game because I want to understand 
where their frame of mind is. So going into this particular game, I knew that um, Bob Huggins didn't want to be there, right? Like West Virginia is traveling to Youngstown. One of the stipulations in the contract was they're not going to play on campus. So they were playing in this um, off-site location that hadn't had a basketball game. It was like a 5,000-seat like like, multi-purpose venue kind of older. So like they hadn't had a basketball game there in a couple of years. So I already know like going in, he's not happy that he's playing this game. It's a week before they're ranked in the top 25, but they're not really like hitting the stride he wants them to. And a couple of players are like loafing on defense in practice and in game. So I come back on the other end and it's like in a dead ball. And he's asking me something about a call across the court. Right now I couldn't do this with everyone. And I had to have a certain relationship, but I, I used it judiciously. And he, I let him go on, right? And then I made some reference to a player that he had mentioned in his press conference has been like loafing on defense. And so and I don't remember the player's name. Let's say his name was Adam. And so he's talking it to me about it. A... Hey, use a different name. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. with Brian. Brian. I play full core D. Come on. <laughs> the press, press, press Virginia is their known, right? So he's asking me about a travel on the other team, right? So we come back down and he, he asked me that. So what are my two options? I can argue with him and raise my voice. And now I'm just you know, I'm poking the bear at that point, right? Or I can just let him finish, understand where he's coming from. And I said, hey, you're probably right. Like, how, how's he going to argue with? Yeah, I probably miss it. And then I went, hey, is, is Brian still kind of dogging it on defense or has he figured out that that's really what's going to allow him to play more? You talk about just breaking the ice and like he's just in a dead laugh and he kind of looks at me. He's like, how the hell do you know that? And I'm like, this game's not about blowing the whistle. And I just ran out and he was like, he said something else that I'm not going to mention on, on here, but it's like little things like that, right? Now, I couldn't do that 20 times a game. At, at some point, he's going to be like, hey, what would you think about that call? And I've got to answer. But to be able to understand the people you're working with and, and to be able to understand what's going through their mind and what are they thinking about, what are they worried about, like that just completely elevated me in his mind because he's like, I didn't come over there to argue. I didn't come over there to puff my chest and ego and like, hey, I didn't miss that, right? I'm human in an imperfect game played by humans. So I'm going to miss some calls, right? Um, and you've got that ability as an official to come up to a coach. Now, you can only say it about once a game, but you, hey, I, I missed it. You're right. I'll get better. Yeah, so it's it's really good what you're sharing. And again, like this is all new for me, like unless you're in the profession of being an official or you know refereeing, you don't really think about the preparation that goes into it. So you think how that translates to the business world. If you're a in a toxic environment or you're going into a meeting with a CEO, doing your homework really impresses people. I would read CEO's annual reports. I would go, hey, you talked about this is one of your goals. How are we going to accomplish that together? So doing your homework, the preparation. And I love the fact that the referees are talking trash too. <laughs> like you, you don't you don't really see that. Sometimes you'll see them dialoguing with a player or a coach. And I love what you're sharing here. This is all new for me. So you did name drop someone else that I'd love to talk about Kobe Bryant. So uh, until he passed away, like I really never understood his obsession you know, with the process, the game, the amount of work and preparation that he did. Of course, you know, he's God given talent and a body built for basketball, but there's a, you know, a lot of other guys that have that same genetic makeup, but his obsession with the process uh, was really inspiring to me. And I caution our audience because the more you get into Kobe Bryant, guys like that, or Tiger Woods or Michael Jordan, 
you'll start to think like that. So like even this morning, it's you know, 3.15 a.m. Uh, my kids didn't have school today. You know, they had friends over, whatever. I wake up at 3.15 and I'm like, all right, Kobe would just get up and go into the office. So I, I got up, I'm like standing outside of the gym at 3.55 waiting for the doors to open. So be careful what you wish for in the obsession and passion uh, for what you're doing, but I really do love what I'm doing and feel like I'm doing what God created me to do, which is to inspire entrepreneurs and encourage them on their business journey. So all that to say, tell us as much as you can about Kobe Bryant and how that can apply to business life. Yeah. So one of the things, and I'm with you, Adam, I guess I look back, I wouldn't say regret, but knowing what I know now, I I would have engaged with Kobe a little bit more about the mindset piece. And just for a little context, there's never in NBA college, there's never interaction between player and referee off season or during the season. It's like we travel separate, we get there separate. But with USA basketball, it's a little unique because as they get ready for the Olympics and the world championships, the FIBA officials, as I was a member of, we do all of their tryouts. We do all of their exhibition games now in a, in a sanctioned tournament. Like when I traveled overseas, you never can referee your own country in a sanctioned FIBA game, international game. But for exhibitions and leading up to the Olympics, like the, the country can pick whoever they want. So just a little context. So this, the story I'm about to share would never happen like in the NBA or college or anything. So people always ask me once they hear I was a ref. But I'll ask you, Adam, like, what do you think the, the first question is when people hear I'm a ref? Like, what do you think the first question that they ask me is? Are, Are you crazy? <laughs> that, that's probably like the second or third question. But the first question is always like, what's the biggest game you ever refereed, right? And, and, and I understand that now. And so I think my answer always surprises people. And I'm like, you're probably going to be surprised by my answer because it wasn't actually a game. The biggest thing I ever refereed or the hardest thing was actually the first time that I worked an inner squad scrimmage of our men's Olympic basketball team in 2012. And so the story there is because I, I believe part of your question was like, is there a crazy story or something you want to share? There's only one time in my career that the whistle has ever fallen out of my mouth during a practice or scrimmage, an exhibition or a real game. And it was the, the situation on the story I'm about to tell you. So that team, for some of your listeners, 2012, not even debatable behind the 92 Olympic team, it will be the best assembled in, in our lifetime for sure in the next 40 or 50 years. So the starting lineup was Kobe, LeBron, Chris Paul, Carmelo Anthony, and Tyson Chandler. That was a starting five. And then the backup, the, the second five was, and this is when they were all teammates at OKC, Durant, Westbrook, Harden, uh, Darren Williams, and, and Blake Griffin got hurt in Vegas the week before. So they brought in Anthony Davis, who was just the number one draft pick, but he, he's never played with NBA guys, all right? And then Kevin Love and Andre Iguodala. So those are the 12 guys for three hours, close media, just close, just us. And, and I know there's a documentary on Netflix. Everything in that documentary is 100% true. Now, I didn't work with that team. That team was 08. But everything you saw there, everything's true. Like I, I tell people, like, the, the, the lure, the allure of – those USA Olympic practices, like that's like the Loch Ness Monster, but like I've been in them. Everything you've heard and more is true. So anyway, the, the situation is, um, Anthony, we're, we're doing uh, situational play. So like four seconds on the shot clock, blue team gets it, white team gets it, right? And we're running different plays, out of bounds, baseline, out of bounds, free throw line extended, right? 
So there's one play, Anthony Davis is coming off an elbow screen and he catches it in kind of the low mid post, kind of below the free throw line. And he's going to go in for a wide open two hand dunk. Okay. Kobe comes off Westbrook because he and Westbrook are guarding each other. He comes off Westbrook and two hand shoves Anthony Davis. Again, Anthony Davis going in for a wide open dunk. Kobe two hand shoves him and he probably goes 10 to 15 feet and the whistle just comes out of my mouth. And I'm like, this number one, this is practice, right? Number two, this is, it's not like this is just someone off the street from the line. So like, this is Anthony Davis. Not that he was better than anyone else, right? But number one draft pick, whatever. Now, I'm not going to repeat what Kobe said, but he completely undressed Anthony Davis, the coaches. Practice was stopped. He, he undressed his team. And, and, and the moral of the story was he took, and I had always heard this, but seeing it first thing, he took practice way more serious than the game. And that's why that practice was so, like mentally exhausting because of him and, and the standard that he was holding these. I mean, there's arguably six, seven, eight Hall, Hall of Famer, future Hall of Famers on that team. And he was at another level. Like you had mentioned, like they all had the body. And I think that's table stakes, especially at that level. You start to see a little bit of separation with the craft and the shooting and some of the stuff he was doing after practice. And then up here is where you really start to see the biggest separation. And for your listeners, I'm pointing to my mind. And so that really just showed me and opened my eyes at it. And I, there was six or seven specific stories from that first practice, my first interaction, where I could write a book on just that practice of like so many applications to the real world. And, and as I look back in June, I think it was June or July of 2012, that completely changed the trajectory of my career because I started to look at things completely. That's where the whole do boring better, my personal uh, motto and philosophy came from. Um, it, that's the same year that I didn't get hired into the NBA. And so taking that experience and, and looking at it from a different perspective, but that was the first time where I'm like, oh my gosh, he is just, he stopped practice. He's pushed this guy 15 feet where in a real game, I wouldn't have even had to go to the monitor to review. It would have been like automatic ejection. Um, so that really, yeah, that really opened my eyes. One other quick story I'll share from that practice. So we get done with this three-hour practice, and now they go open the doors and, and let the media come in. And the other 11 guys go up and do their own thing. Some are getting stretched. Some are doing interviews. And again, to remind your listeners, we never travel with the team. USA basketball is a little bit different. So I asked one of the, the managers after we, you know, uh, get done with practice, I'm like, hey, how long are we going to be here, right? You know, like, I, got, I, I have the day off now. I'm in D.C. The game's not until tomorrow night. Like, I just want to, like, get out and, you know, see things and, and enjoy the city. And he's like, oh, we're not leaving until Kobe makes 300 shots. And I'm like, makes or just shoots? And he's like, no, makes. And for the next 45 minutes, everything he did on the right side with his right hand, he did on the left side with his left hand and vice versa. And Mike Hopkins, for, for any of your listeners or basketball fans, he was the longtime assistant to Jim Beheim at Syracuse. He's now at Washington. He was the tallest, most athletic. So this is probably, you know, 11 years ago. I don't know how old he was at the time, but. He's just drenched in sweat. And Kobe is, pardon me, Kobe's cussing him out because he's not taking it. He doesn't think he's taking it as serious as Kobe is. And Kobe's now undressing. And I'm like, this guy is just, this is another level. So those are the two that stand out. There was so many others. So we, we well, can do it's funny you say that about practice because I've had some previous guests that I've known, you know, played in the NBA. One of my buddies uh, came up to visit me in Detroit. I was like, you have to come watch my son in his hockey game. He's like, I don't want to see his game. I want to see his practice. 
and we went and watched practice and he, he was yeah. like, you know, breaking down. So people that play at that high level, they understand the work and preparation that goes into practice. And Kobe, I would... I've, as I mentioned earlier, I've studied him a lot, some to my own demise, but I'm now getting after my own sons like, Hey, yeah, I'll come watch your game. But that's just like, you know, the icing on the cake. I want to see how you practice, how you prepare. Those are the would... things you can control. And then the game is the overflow. So if you think about in your work, your profession, it's really in the preparation. And then that actual meeting that you're having, the sales presentation, uh, you've done it a thousand times. Like you said, Kobe, and he, he didn't just shoot 300 shots. He had to make 300 and he's sure. doing it, doing it at the highest level. So uh, that's an incredible story. And earlier you, you picked up a, a sunglass case or whatever it is your your glasses case but real, real quick adam what the practice component for for those of your listeners entrepreneurs or sales leaders or or folks that are you know on the front line in sales like think back to now i didn't play any sports in high school you obviously did but and i'm sure a lot of your listeners did even in college too but if you think back to high school right you're probably spending 18 20 hours practicing right now depending on your sport if you have one game football obviously one game basketball you might have two Let's just say for sake of argument, you have four hours of an actual game, right? And we'll just, so 20 hours of practice, four hours of a game, of game time, right? And that's in high school. Like we're not getting paid for that. Then we get into the real world and it's the complete opposite. We practice like zero, if any, like even like top performers, I mean, they're practicing a lot more, but I would say just from my experience working with sales teams or interacting with leadership groups, like the practice piece is like 2% and the play is like 98%. It's the complete inverse of a sport where you're not getting paid and you're, you know, 14 to 18, but then you get in the real world where your livelihood is at stake and your commissions are at stake. And it's like, well, why would I practice? I've got all these opportunities uh, to meet with people. So I just, I wanted to add in that little antidote because that just completely like shifted my perspective. And I'm like, I never even thought of that because I never played high school sports, refereed high school when I first started. But it, it, it's so true is like the practice play percentage gets flipped when we get into the real world. And it almost should be the reverse. Like our practice should go up because money's involved. I'm so glad you, glad you said that because part of my entrepreneurial coaching is a lot of entrepreneurs are bootstrapping a business and they want to raise capital. I, I tell them all the time, money is always available. It's can you communicate the opportunity. So they go and they make a business plan or an investor presentation. And then I say, all right, let's run through your presentation. It's not clear. They haven't practiced it. And, and so we literally role play. All right, I'm a venture capital firm. You're trying to raise $5 million, make your presentation. And, and they don't do any of those reps unless they're actually in the meeting. And, and so it's great that you say that. And that's one of the things that we do with our coaching is getting those reps in and, you know, sales, business, being an entrepreneur, it's all about being able to transfer certainty. I believe in what I'm doing and I want you to know that I believe in what I'm doing. You don't have to believe it, but if you see my confidence and my belief, then typically uh, a transaction can take place. And I think the final component there, I agree with everything you said is, and I'm a, a big believer in this is like, Hey, this might not, like, I'm not for everyone. Like, that's how I usually start out conversations, whether it's about coaching or speaking. 
because I don't want there to be any like misnomers or like it says on my website too, like I'm demanding this isn't for everybody. And I'll tell people that when I talk about speaking, like I'm going to make some people uncomfortable in the crowd. Are you okay with that? If not, like I'm not, you're just like yippee, you know, Kaye motivation here. Like that's not me. Now I'll share some stories. And if someone gets inspired, you know, that's on them, but make no bones. Like I'm not coming in there to like glad hand to everybody there. Like it's going to make some people uncomfortable and, and coaching too. But I think that's where our greatest growth comes from is when there's some resistance and when we actively seek that out. But if you're, if you're just going and, and waiting for that presentation to practice, I think you're leaving, not, I think you're leaving a lot on the table, but I, I think that that last component of like, look, we're not for everyone. Right. I think that just makes it more human. You can be confident. You can, you can be courageous. You can ask tough questions, but just putting on that human element of like, look, I'm not for everyone. Cause the truth is I don't want to be for I think that kind of separate, that weeds the people out a little quicker and not drag it along. I'm like, look, I'm not for everyone. And I'm okay if, if after this, we don't move forward. I think it's that Midwest personality, right? <laughs> you don't really need approval from other people, but I'm trying to grow my comfort zone, not go out of my comfort zone, but expand it. Uh, on my first couple of podcasts, people are like, you look, a, you look like you want to kill somebody. I said, well, that's just my natural resting so now you you see some of these are four smiles, but I'm getting better at smiling more and more because I enjoy what I'm doing. But I'm at that same level. Like if you want to compete at the highest level, I, I'm great to work with. If you don't want pushback, feedback, the only way to grow is through resistance. You go in the gym, you lift heavy weights, tears down the muscle, builds it back up and you come back stronger. That's the purpose of coaching and, and personal development. And you look at guys like Kobe. Tiger Woods, Michael Jordan, they all had coaches and they were the greatest of their profession to ever walk the face of the earth. And yet they still have coaching because they do provide accountability, discipline, structure, feedback. Uh, we all need coaching at some point to help reach the next level. So we can go back to my previous question. Yep. I met you in Detroit at the Impact 11 event. It was a great event. Josh Linkner and his group, I've known them for a long time, top notch, just the way they did everything, the content. And I heard your story a little bit. I was like, I have to go meet this guy <laughs> to hear the voice of an official and just how you were able to maintain the thick skin during the officiating. Uh, and so I walk up to you and I, we start talking and then I was like, all right, let's just exchange phone numbers. And you're like, I don't have a phone. Now I've, I've, I've gone through things like this before and my kids will tell you, I'll get on some, I listen to a podcast about how your smartphone is causing ADD and the blue lights or all the stuff that goes with it. So I'll listen to a podcast and then I'm like, all right, we're all trading in our iPhones. And I come back with flip phones and then it lasts about 24 hours trying to text like with the actual buttons, A, C, and they're like, this is a joke. So you and I meet, you hand me this card, which I thought it was your business card. I just like, all right, yeah, this is cool. They're like, no, I don't have a phone. So I put it in my pocket, but you had some uh, QR code, I think that I could scan from it to get your contact information, but please tell us what you're doing right now with your phone and why. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's always interesting, especially since I started this journey of like when I meet people and I, I tell them this, just the conversation that from that alone, but again, a little more context and this goes back to officiating. So as an official, we were attached to our phone, 
right? Like literally and figuratively, because that's where we got our game assignments. Um, if you think about, and again, your listeners have probably never thought about this, basketball seasons between October and March. Well, in the South, it's okay. And then in the far West, it's okay. But everywhere else, that's winter, right? So I'm checking weather updates, flight updates, uh, hotel reservations, rental car reservations. Miraculously, in my 17-year career, I never flew to the wrong city because we handle all our travel, unlike the NBA. So just that I never showed up in the wrong city refereeing like 750, 800 games is an accomplishment in and of itself. So always on. And then the, the story I share is like, you know, if, I, if three guys are working a game and one guy gets hurt, that supervisor is going to pull up his list of like, all right, here's, here's the 20 guys that are available kind of ranked in his, you know, preferential order. Well, let's say Adam's name is number one on that list. He's calling Adam and Adam gets four rigs. He's not leaving Adam a voicemail. He's not leaving Adam uh, a text and he's not waiting for Adam to call back in two hours. So you got about a 20 to 30 second window if you have the day off and there's a game or even like there was times when I woke up in one city and my supervisor was like, hey, figure it out, but I need you to go to Dallas and you're in you know, Morgantown, West Virginia right now. So it's like, all right, I got to figure this out. That was my life for 17 years, like always on, always on. When I stepped off the court in 2020, just I felt God was saying like, hey, this chapter of your life is over and you just got to trust me and we'll figure out what the next thing is. So I was taking steps when I retired of removing all notifications on my phone. Didn't have email on my phone anymore. Put my phone in black and white, utilizing do not disturb little things. And then on June 14th of this year, about almost three, four months ago, um, I had a rule that I've incorporated since I came off the court after many sleepless nights of just laying in hotel beds and replaying plays. What, what would have happened if I was in this position? Did I handle that conversation with the coach correctly? How could I have been a better teammate to my partner? Like just sitting there replaying. So I made this rule when I retired, like if you don't fall asleep within five minutes, you get up, you leave the bedroom and you either go read a book or you write and journal. So couldn't fall asleep. And as I look back on it, I heard God say that, hey, what if you gave your phone up for a year? And I'm like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. And so I'm like wrestling with this and it had to have been like five or 10 minutes. And I'm like, I, I got to go downstairs. And that's the gift and the curse of being an entrepreneur and having your home office in your house is that I've got a whiteboard right here out of, out of sight. But I just came down here for like two or three hours. Now, I didn't tell my wife I was going to do it for about three weeks or so because I really wanted to think through logistically. We've got two young girls. What, how is this going to work? Right. And so fast forward, I just decided, Hey, you know what? Yeah, this is a little crazy. Right. But what could come out of it on the other side of it? Right. So I'm, I turned it off on August 5th. It's, it's in my closet. I've got, like, like I said, I've got two young girls. So the only time I will turn it on is if God forbid, there's an actual emergency, not like a upset stomach, but like a broken leg or blood is kind of like the two reasons. Otherwise, like when I, when I met you in Detroit, like I don't travel with it as like a backup plan. Like my, my faith's in God. Like, God forbid, if I'm in an accident, like, it is what it is. And to some people, they're like, they, they can't fathom that. But where there's a lack of, or where worry is present, all that means is there's a lack of faith. Um, so for me, it was like, all right, I'm going to put this aside. Probably not the best thing to do or the most advantageous, you know, year two of the business, you know, trying to grow my speaking and coaching business a lot tougher with a phone. Um, so yeah, it's been a wild ride. Today's day 69 a ton of insights. I've written more in 69 days of my life than I have in 39 years, which is kind of wild to think about. Well, you I'm mentioned your faith in God and and that's one of the pillars of the House of Bricks too, is just, you know, faith and 
having that as really why we're doing what we're doing, obviously to be a great father, great leader, but, you know, really glorifying God and in, in everything that we do and, and how we do it. So one, one of the things you said, right, there, there's only two belief systems, there's faith and there's fear, and they both require faith. <laughs> you have to have faith to, to be afraid because you're believing in a fear-based mindset and belief system, or you can have faith in using well, you know, like we talk about uh, life's experiences are like bricks and you can either view everything as a positive and lay those bricks down and build a strong foundation in your business life. Every opportunity is an opportunity for growth, or you can carry those bricks with you and it's, hey, I messed up yesterday. Hey, I can't, you know, what's going to happen tomorrow, but it's really Living in the present, our last guest, a 19-year-old hockey player for University of Minnesota, first-round draft pick. But his whole message, and this was incredible, coming from a 19-year-old, he's like, I live in the present. And he's chasing this dream of playing in the NHL. But every day, he's trying to control what he can control, not worrying about yesterday and not focused on tomorrow, but it's living in the present. I want to ask you, is there anything you can share with our listeners of how you would process mistakes on the court? Like you said, two minutes left in the game, you don't make a call or you do make a call. It's the wrong call. Is there anything practical that they could apply in business and life of how to process what some people would view as failure? You know, fail, failure is an F word for us. So everything's an opportunity to grow. Are there things that you did? practically that is something they could translate into business? A lot of times when I work with successful entrepreneurs or executives and they want to start doing things, I'm like, hold on, hold on. We're not going to add anything to your schedule, to your calendar, to your, what you're doing. Like we're going to start taking stuff away. Like here's the stuff we need to stop doing. So that's number one. And then number two, I would always say you can dictate the trajectory of your success and your ability to overcome little losses. So like in a game, it would be, I didn't like how I handled that uh, conversation with a coach. I didn't, I didn't have a poker face when my teammate missed a call. I didn't have a poker face when I missed a call. I didn't like how I handled that interaction with a player. But your ability, those are all little losses in the grand scheme of life and within the game. But your ability to overcome those and the faster you can overcome a little loss is going to set you up for success. Well, two would- things. One, I'm kind of laughing because your kids are two and four. <laughs> and I go through, I have three teenagers three teenage boys and a 10 year old son. And I'm laughing because it sounds very similar to our household. I, I I'm obsessed with growth every day. I want to get better, do more. And of course I want to bring my family with me. So we have a group family text, how strong where every day it's getting lit up with, Hey, how can we be better? Here's things to focus on. So let's interested to see the end result, especially now teenagers, you kind of get to the age like, yeah, I know more than your parents do, but I know they're all good seeds being being planted. And the other thing I wanted to comment on that, what you shared definitely translates into the business world, because a lot of times when you're making a presentation, your mistakes stick out more to you than the people that you're presenting to. So having some sort of reset, pick up your pen, adjust your shirt, restate what you said correctly, then 
move the conversation forward, go back to your last point if you didn't make one. Clearly, those are all little things that you can do. It's it's in a game. You're making a sales presentation. There's a beginning and an end. Don't give up in the second quarter and put your head down and think that that it's over. There's always time to recover. And again, everyone makes mistakes and they they stand out more to you than they would to to anybody else. So as we look to to wrap up this show, this has been incredible, enlightening for me. Heard about Kobe Bryant, life as an official. I am gonna ask you one more question. So other than the the best game that you officiated, have you ever had your life threatened as an official? No, never did. You, you know, just in the world we live in today, like up until three years ago, I never had any social media presence because I've had friends who um, received death threats, you know, had people show up at their house. Like, I mean, and, and now that's only going to get um, elevated with gambling, right? Like I always used to say to my parents and, and now wife, like at a game, like, never say you're with me, right? Like never say you're with the official because you just don't know, like someone could make an offhand comment, but then, you know, a call I make takes it from a 10 point game to an eight point game and they just lost five grand, right? So that was the world we live in. I never had social media. I started it when I started my company. Um, don't enjoy it. I'm actually working with uh, a team right now to completely like, because I see benefits of it. I just, I don't want any part of it. I don't want to I'll give them all the content and they can, they can run with it, but I have no interest in, and even today of, of having an active uh, profile, because you just, you just never know like what, from a basketball standpoint, how much money or situation that people like, so I just was like, stay below the radar and, and don't, don't give people ammunition. I'm right there with you. I was never on social media prior to starting the house of bricks and my executive coaching, but it does give you a big platform to do positive things and inspire people. And I do have a great team that listens to me probably more than they want to, but they can communicate (laughs) now in my voice, right my way. So it's, it's good to build the right team around you to do that and make a big impact. So Tommy, I want to thank you for being a guest on the House of Bricks podcast. You are the first official. I wish you would have been here in person. Yeah. would have been two firsts. You'd have been the first guest in the actual studio, but we're leveraging technology to get the word out and share your story. Good luck on that iPhone sabbatical that you're on. I would say I'll text you after the show, but (laughs) you won't respond. I won't respond. You didn't give me your cell phone number. So Uh, But once again, thanks for being a guest on the House of Bricks podcast and best of luck with your executive coaching. If people want to learn more about you and your public speaking, uh, we're going to put your information uh, on the website and also in the post of the show. So, Tommy, thanks for being a guest on the House of Bricks. Thanks, Adam. We'll we'll do round two in person. I'm I'm all for it. When you phone. (laughs) There you go.